Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. On now, the Future Sense is 9.58, and uh, I am with uh, myself, I think, Nick Jeans, yeah, I'm here, and Ross Hill, my, uh, my special guest uh, co-host this morning uh, on this show, and maybe for the next few weeks too. And in the studio, great pleasure to welcome Helena Norberg-Hodge to the studio, again, a well-known figure in this region. Good day. How are you doing, Helena? Good day. Happy to be here. For those who don't know Helena, Helena, uh, among many other things, has uh, pioneered local movements globally through her organisation, Local Futures, uh, written Ancient Futures, uh, uh, book uh, since translated into some 40 languages it's pretty remarkable in itself and created the documentary economics of happening happiness about your time in in Ladakh and interestingly off air we were just talking uh, Russ mentioned that he'd been himself in uh, Bhutan and that was an interesting story talking about renewability resilience localization markets trade which we're going to touch into some of these topics here mentioning the recycling of plastic in yeah. Bhutan and your little tale about that which uh, you had a great comment about so what was that Ross? Yeah, I was in Bhutan uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I met a, a recycling entrepreneur, and he was starting this social venture to collect a lot of the rubbish, mm. and the, especially the plastics, um, which had been taking over the, the area. Um, and he had a good business. It was running. He was collecting a lot of uh, plastic and the usual bottles and things, um, and he would compact them and then send them across the border to India, where they had a bigger processing plant. Yeah. Um, and as an entrepreneur, he was looking at how can he grow his venture and scale what he's doing. And so he was talking to the, the people with the larger plants, and they said, well, the, the big plants process a lot of plastic, so you're going to need to collect three times as much plastic <laughs> um, to justify getting the processing equipment for your own country. Um, and he said, well, you, we, we would have to use more plastic and waste more for that to be possible. And so that seems like going backwards. Um, but, you know, that's, that's one of the interesting paradoxes yes. and, and complications here. If he couldn't do it locally in his own country mm. because they weren't producing enough waste mm. um, and, and of course and the goal is they shouldn't be producing more waste maybe <laughs> yes. well I would say very definitely I think <laughs> this is also part of what's happened is that we've been trained to think too much from the point of view of the needs of big business mm. the whole world is framing all its activity around how big business is framing the environmental issues including recycling plastic you know rather than talking more about producing a much much less plastic which in turn is linked to strengthening more local economies where you don't need nearly as much plastic but that's a real that's a real yeah, threat to big business <laughs> now we have you here today because of uh, as i've already mentioned a couple of times the local futures convention that you're you're producing yourself local futures and the economic economics of happiness and new economy network australia nina at the Bryan community center friday the 20th to the 22nd and on that topic you just mentioned there there are, there are three themes of the festival the first one is understanding the dominant economic system and global market and its impact on democracy and local economies. Just expand a little bit on that. I mean, that's a good example just used there regarding plastic. Yeah. Well, basically, I've ended up studying for the last 40 years or so the impact of trade treaties that we just don't talk enough about that have given global 
monopolies more and more power over our governments. Their, our governments have been signing in black and white, we will not do anything that might reduce your profit-making potential. Mm. If we do something that would reduce your profits, you can take us to court. Yeah. And these courts are kangaroo courts. Is this something that I think n almost no sane person would embrace and still pretend that we have a democracy? Mm. And we have to remember that these giants are also the giant media conglomerates. They are funding you know, entire universities. So it's penetrating into all our thinking. We're seeing the world through the eyes of giant monopolies, and that's why we're not dealing with climate change the way we should be. Mm. I mean, uh, still a lot of people, while they're probably very suspicious of that structure that you're talking about, uh, I imagine there's quite a lot of people who still don't actually believe how the tentacles of this uh, this global organisation actually reach into basically everything in our world. I guess this is part of what you want to bring more exactly. attention to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We need, unfortunately, we need to bring attention to how those tentacles of the, you know, it's like this invisible hand, but mm. it's got tentacles in every arena and the most frightening thing is in how we frame the issues for instance the plastic yeah. but also climate change it's been framed entirely in terms of blaming the individual yes. and we hear nothing about these arrangements between global monopolies mm. and government to give them more freedom to take almost all production away from countries where labor is well paid into poor countries in the name of bringing up their standards but no they're creating huge monstrosities of sort of slave-like manufacturing. So it's really, it's really important that we look at that big picture, mm. and I think it's very important we do it without demonizing or blaming anyone in particular, mm. no particular business, no particular anybody. It's really the systemic direction. Do we want to keep mm. going towards bigger, faster, more global, with ever more waste, ever more resource use, or do we want to start transitioning towards more diversified, more self-reliant, regional, national economies? So when we talk about local, we're talking about moving towards strengthening mm. the local, particularly around food, but generally, even at the regional and national level, diversifying mm. instead of monoculture. Going back to trade, you mentioned off-air a, a term I hadn't heard before, and that's insane trade. You can just expand a little bit. I mean, you've already touched on that, but just what yeah. that terminology means. Yeah, well, what it means for us, we have a little campaign, we have a little film on our website, which is localfutures.org, yeah. and what we're trying to raise awareness about there is that countries are now routinely importing and exporting the same product. Yes. And when it comes to food, which is something every person on this planet needs every single day about three times a day so we're talking about some you know 24 billion times a day around the world as people eat we now have economic policies supported by our governments that separate us further and further from the source of that food now if tomorrow around the world people were eating food from their region no multinational would make money but literally millions or well, billions of people would be making more money and benefiting mm -hmm. so it's that type of decentralization we need to understand but first of all you know it starts by understanding that literally the US exports a billion tons of beef turns around and imports a billion tons of beef in a year the UK exports you know tons and tons of butter and milk in roughly the same quantity as they import biscuits potatoes water Australia exports 20 tons of bottled water to England UK exports 20 tons of bottled water to Australia. So we have, this is going on with wheat, it's going on, and then on top of that... It's a madness, isn't it? It is it's insane. totally insane, <laughs> especially at a time when we're 
talking mm. about climate change and we're witnessing the effects of climate change. Mm. And we know even, you know, even if nothing else, we know that we need to reduce fossil fuels. We know that for a million reasons, yeah. not just climate change, no, the toxic right. effect in, you know, across I mean, the board. It, it occurs to me just the fact that we still burn things in order to get somewhere is uh, somehow uh, ancient, really, almost, in, yeah. in, when we think about it now. You got yeah. any comments on some of this, Ross? Well, yeah, I think it's fascinating um, because there's so much trade happening across the world and we're not really sure what's in all of those containers, you know. <laughs> and you see them on the ships sometimes, and you're like, what, what's going on in there? And obviously when you, you add up the numbers, it doesn't make sense a lot of the time. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really curious to ask, um, in terms of the, the categories of products, um, it sounds like exporting water and importing water is a bit silly. Um, whereas my iPhone was produced in, in China and assembled from parts across the world. does Do these different categories make a difference? Like for technology, does it make sense to centralise some of it? Whereas food, my breakfast came from up the road. I think that makes sense too. Yeah, I think, mm. I think absolutely it makes sense, you see, because this is also with technology, there is an efficiency of scale. With food, fishery, forestry, there is basically no efficiency of scale. In fact, mm -hmm. the efficiency is the smaller, the better. The smaller, the more diversified, the better. And the really important fact is, anywhere in the world, if you take a piece of land, one square meter or one square kilometer, and you plant it with diversity, including some trees and bushes, and ideally even animals in the cycle, vegetables, etc., mm. you will always be able to produce more than you can on a monoculture. So a monoculture could never compete. The efficiency of industrial monocultures, which we've been told again and again is needed to feed the world, is that it removed people from the land using fossil fuels, machinery, chemicals, mm. chemical fertilizer. So it's highly inefficient in an age of climate change and overpopulation. And I just want to add that we need to understand the difference between someone working on a smaller, highly diversified farm and the difference of someone standing as a migrant worker or a slave in colonial times on some huge cotton plantation or soya plantation, you know, acting like a machine. Then at that time, when you had those enormous slave-like, you know, monocultures, then machinery seemed like progress, yeah, yeah. but not today. It was progress yeah. at, the time. Yeah, at the time. Yeah, at the time. <laughs> yeah very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it brings up the question that many people do ask about the, the relocalization of food in particular and the diversity of farming. I think it's fascinating that that sort of diversity in a small scale can actually produce more per hectare, Much per, more. per area. But how many people are actually going to go back to the land to do that? I think well, that's a question that many people ask. Well, I tell you, are we just going to be forced right to do it? Right here in the Shire, hmm? we have again and again more and more students from the permaculture, you know, hmm. even from the Byron yeah. College here and from other institutes wanting work. Yeah. They can't get it. Okay. There is a new micro trend. I'm a master of observing small micro trends around the world. I call them ancient futures trends because they're taking us back towards the earth, towards more reconnection. Indigenous and more cultures, community. some of the knowledge yeah. and wisdom of the, those cultures. The wisdom mm. of d more deeply connected. Yep. And there is a micro trend, and it's even true in China. One of our speakers at our conference was going to be this professor of agriculture who already in about 2000 started 
started a rural reconstruction movement in China, he could see the disaster of everyone leaving their villages and smaller towns to move into Beijing and the giant cities and is trying to create really thriving economies in rural areas. How's it going? Is it working? It is working, but, but it's, it's, it's a scale-up. small yeah. micro-trend, mm-hmm. and he can't publicize it too much, but he does have mm-hmm. some support from the central government. But it's, you know, it's divided. They're doing both, you yeah. know, but they are, there is support for it. Mm-hmm. So he has achieved quite a lot, and it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he can't come now because of the virus. But <laughs> but we have been, you know... Well, I you'll know. have them on the screen because I yeah. know you've got uh, Dr. David Suzuki who yeah. we're yeah. dialing in and also Charles yeah. Eisenstein, Charles who's, Eisenstein. Uh, who's sat in the studio a couple of times when he was in Australia a few years ago. Yeah, I really like Charles. Yeah, yeah. I think Charles is, yeah. Charles is great. Yeah, fascinating stuff. We'll take a little bit of a break here on Future Sense with Nick Jeans and this week with Ross Hill and our special guest this morning is Helena Norberg-Hodge. We're talking about local futures. And generally, you can go to localfutures.org, as uh, Helena already mentioned, for the details about the conference. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we come back. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Thanks for your text. I might mention this one. Thanks to Mia, who's written in. I'm not sure I could be bothered growing all of my own veggies. I find herbs and citrus challenging enough. Uh, but would these micro farms be like neighbourhood gardens? Would I would happily contribute dollars for someone in my street to do the labour? Well, what we're talking about in the global local food movement, which is growing around the world and is growing much faster than we think. Mm. And it's for me why I feel so much more hopeful than most people, Mm. because I see around the world a will from the majority of people to do things differently, Mm. to treat nature better, to want more community and connection. There's so much evidence. We just have this blind leadership particularly at national government level and big giant businesses that are just not close enough to the ground. So we're not talking about everyone growing their own veg. We're talking about reestablishing a balance between farming and the city, between in, in every aspect of our lives we're going, and we don't see it, but the urbanization is a direct consequence of allowing global monopolies to have so much power. Mm. So it's linked to mass urbanization where jobs are concentrated in fewer and fewer big cities. And in those big cities, the house prices shoot up to astronomical proportions. People can't survive. And then you have a few places like Byron and other desirable smaller places where they become so popular for tourist reasons and very wealthy people want to retire and they also have very high house prices. But if you go around most countries, you'll find if you go f- away from those few centers, the house prices are a fraction of what they are in these few desirable places. And so it's all to do with the economic driving towards globalization, localization as we're advocating it is a decentralization. And no, everyone does not need to grow their own food, but we do need to support the smaller farmers. This is why I helped to start the farmers markets here in Byron. And at least that's supporting a few small growers And yes, great also if people can grow in their gardens and really good idea what you just suggested is that people get together even in the towns and cities as they're doing to help fund community gardens and that kind of thing for those people who want to do it. And right here in the Shire, we have a lot of young people who would love to do this, but there is no money in it. Yes. And why is that? That's what localization is about. Well, that's right. And as we already already talked about, uh, insane trade, to use your terminology there, maybe expand a bit on that because 
because, of course, those trade, those big trade, the scale trade around the world is subsidised, it's under-regulated, it's untaxed or little tax and all these things. And these things, these elements of government support or lack of certainly do not apply. The support does not does not apply to these local, uh, those lo- these lo- rising local ventures. Like no, that I mean, way. and I just I want to say in some ways that's one of the most inspiring things for me is to see around the world that everyone mm. is operating under this system where virtually everything at the local, regional, even national level is squeezed with heavy regulations and more and more bureaucracy and regulation mm. and heavy taxes, really squeezed. At the global level, the global players pay virtually no tax and they have not only no regulations, they are the ones who are now setting the regulation. They're telling governments what to do. Yeah. And among other things, they tell them to regulate at the national level. So we have this completely unfair playing field, which also means that they enjoy the freedom of flying things like macadamias from Byron to be cracked open in China, flown back again, apples flown from the UK to South Africa to be washed flown back again, uh, scallops flown from Tasmania to China to be peeled and flown back mm-hmm. again, fish from Norway to be deboned. Every single day this insanity is going on. I discovered it first in the 70s when I was living in and working in Ladakh and Bhutan, and I saw butter coming in from the other side of the Himalayas, selling for half the price of local butter. As I started on a journey to understand this, that's when I saw this insane trade that favors the global traders at the expense of virtually everybody else. And at that time in Sweden, when I went back to Sweden, my native country, at that time, they were sending potatoes to Italy by road in big lorries to be washed and put in plastic bags and sent back again by road. Now this is happening by air and across the world because the logic is the giants that are freed up not to do as they like and not pay taxes, their infrastructure is subsidized. The biggest ports, the biggest airports, it's all for them, the super highways for them. And they then artificially come into your local economy and deliver the supermarket food at an artificially low price and destroy the the local competitors. That's what we have to change. We've got to wake up and we have to start building the local. Yeah. Got to uh, comment on the on the the madness of all this and how the it affects. Yeah, it's definitely it. insanity. And um, <laughs> one of the ironies of, of travel is that you know sometimes we'll travel really really far to learn some of these seemingly obvious things. Mm. Um, I had a similar experience in Bhutan. Um, I was shown the the local market, and then I was shown the imported market. Um, and it's really interesting once you get to the edges of different societies. Um, that's one of the things I enjoyed going to Uluru uh, in January as well. Was once you go to a smaller um, town or mm. or group things do change. So there was less fresh fruit at Alice Springs, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's far from where we Long keep way. all the fruit. Yeah. Um, and it's the desert, so you have different fruits that you would grow there. Uh, and yeah, similar in Bhutan, like there's, there's 700,000 people, so regardless of, of what they want to do, it's a small small type of place and, mm. and they're going to act act differently. Um, but in, in complex systems, we'll often see um, a wobble happen before a major change um, and and sort of will often wobble in completely the opposite direction before it reverses. And I think that's been what's so interesting, um, especially in the last few months, as we've had, you know, fires and illnesses and mm-hmm. these different things, which are, are large-scale events mm-hmm. across Australia. Um, you can't really avoid them. They've been very in-your-face. Um, and, you know, when the shelf at the supermarket is empty, you do start to ask, like, well, where does this stuff come from and can, can we get some more? Yeah. Um, and it is interesting to learn where does... 
the essential items that we use every day come from. Mm. Um, it's important also uh, that uh, Australia, because of, I, I guess, cost, retail costs, space costs in Australia, that there's a very short um, uh, storage uh, of, uh, of all that sort of stuff that goes into our supermarkets. Uh, I can't remember the actual amount of time, but it's not very long, mm. as is fuel supplies. I think we have six weeks of, of fuel, of ordinary fuel supplies. Yeah. So your Tesla might be okay. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. It depends on the category, right? Yeah. Um, and so for some things, you can leave them on the shelf for a year and they're fine. For some things, like especially food, you do want it to be fresh. And you know, so let's, let's get the freshest food we can. But yes. there we just need to add another issue, which is that for a long time now, big business, knowing that they make their mega bucks through this insane trade and monopolizing, they have invested billions upon billions of dollars into how to make food transportable and have a long shelf life. That includes trans fats. It includes all kinds of things. All kinds that of are, additives to the food for longevity for our health you know and not only that is laden with high fructose corn syrup Mm, which is also toxic to our system Mm. so there are so many reasons why we want to support Mm. the local food movement that is growing and that is so inspiring I mean for me there's almost nothing that gives my you know more joy than seeing this new farmers movement these young people are just going out and doing it and they're doing it despite the lack of support and they love it so just a little bit of help in that direction would make a huge difference. Yes. So part of what we'll be talking about at the conference is how can we in this local area create a much more thriving local economy and have many more small independent businesses. They don't need to be co-ops. There's nothing wrong with private mm. and there's nothing wrong mm. with profit as long as it's at a scale that we can comprehend and we have the social and ecological parameters shaping business rather than business shaping the culture around the world. Yes. And what's happening is what's being imposed is a global consumer monoculture. Mm-hmm. So monoculture is the essence of that global system and that means it's anti-life, mm. it's anti-biodiversity. Mm. And of course anti- it, impacts, it impacts things like water which is another issue and of course the, 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 the number of stuff that's stuffed into the, into the soil to supposedly produce better and to uh, you know pesticides and so forth, all of that. We've exactly. got, a, we've got a, another comment, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is the right spelling, it's always hard to know with texts that come in from one of our regular listeners, George, G'day George, um, and he says Wicking Gardens, I don't know if you know Wicking, W-I-C-K-I-N-G, yeah I'm not sure, Wicking Gardens. I'm not sure what they are. George, if you're listening, which you are, you'll have to maybe text in if that's a misspelling. Uh, very low maintenance and can be very a very easy way for anyone to grow food easily on nature strips and front yards. Great conversation, Nick, Ross, and Helena. Much love from George. So we'll see if he comes back with that. I thought maybe you knew what a wicking garden no, was. No, I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll no. have to maybe look it up. Uh, we don't have much so, time left now for today's conversation because uh, you, you'll be back uh, and some of the other of your guests will be back on some other shows in the next week or so before the conference actually happens on the 20th. 20th to the 22nd in the Warren Community Centre downstairs. But I wanted to, to mention um, from uh, an interview, a recent interview of yours in Paradiso, the magazine, where you, this quote, uh, just to take it to a bigger picture right now, you say, the closer and more real we get, we see the whole movement is connected to an inevitable spontaneous human reaction to loneliness and alienation. Loneliness from other people and loneliness from plants, from nature. We need a turning towards nature towards connection. I mean, this is really the sort of value system change underneath this, isn't it? Absolutely. It's the essence of it. And it's a value system, but it's also really, it comes down to survival. 
And so I feel we've got such a win-win-win strategy which operates at all these levels of what would reduce our impact on nature, you know, whether it's the plastic or the energy or the mineral use. And at the same time, we can literally become more productive. I mean, that's a miracle formula. And we've been fed with basically a lie, which is that we need bigger and more, you know, more technology, more genetic engineering to feed the world. It's absolutely not true. We need to allow these young people who actually want to farm now. And I can, you know, I can show you so many projects that are emerging around this area that are happening on just, you know, thin air. I don't know how they're managing, but it's not nearly enough yet. You know, it would still probably only constitute about 4% of the food consumed in the Shire. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. I'm very excited about initiatives that set up local funds where local people come together to try to help move the whole economy in this direction and you know when we talk about returning to nature and returning to community we can see everywhere we look that this is something people long for we can even see it in hollywood films you know like even <laughs> avatar yeah, you know raising absolutely. the status of the indigenous it's yes. in the air yes, it's people in the air. want that reconnection mm. yes and i would argue that the biggest problem is a lack of awareness about how the economy operates so that's this sort of invisible you know these invisible tentacles are mm. pulling us intellectually and physically in the mm. wrong direction mm. but people really want this they're ready for it and it goes totally across left and right boundaries yeah. which is also so wonderful and yeah. so empowering yes absolutely true um, so as someone has just recently relocated to this region <laughs> where do i find this four percent that you mentioned where oh, should I be shopping? <laughs> well, at the farmer's markets. The uh -huh. farmer's markets are definitely the best. I went to the other day. The that was good. <laughs> no, very good. Well, we, need, we need more of those markets, and we also need to understand how precious they are. They're, they're very hard to manage, and particularly because there's a lot of well-funded from big business thinking that says, oh, this is elitist. It costs more than supermarket. This is only about privilege. No, it's a miracle that we're able to do it because the other stuff is subsidized and this is happening, mm. you know, just out of the goodwill of people who yes. want to try to do things mm. differently. Now, a wicking bed, and it is the right spelling, W-I-C-K-I-N-G, is a veggie bed that waters itself from below. It's based on years of experience installing these beds in Melbourne, in fact. And I won't go to the details of it, but you can go to wickingbeds.com.au for details. And thanks to George for that. And uh, that's pretty interesting. There's also things like syncretic farming, which is an interesting uh, area too. I don't know if you're familiar with that, as well as obviously uh, permaculture, which is well known in this area, having emerged from here, in fact, years ago with Bill yeah. Mollison. Yeah, and David Holmgren in yes, the Melbourne okay. area is a fabulous yeah. and a friend and colleague. And yeah, he, he's not travelling very much, but maybe he maybe he could phone in as well. He's a he's a really great person. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, Helena, but we'll have you back talking about this on various shows before the local futures convention coming up the 20th to the 22nd and folks you probably need to get your tickets for that soon yeah you do need to get them very very soon uh if you want to get a seat in the auditorium which i think we only have very few left mm. but we're doing tickets at a much lower price uh with the plenary streamed into the upstairs room on a big screen okay, that's good and those tickets are extremely cheap mm. and we're we're really 
we so want people who are interested to come. So if someone can't even afford that, they should write to us at localfutures.org okay. because we want any and everybody to come if they're interested. Fantastic. Thanks, Elena, for joining us here on Future Sense. The time is 10.29. We'll be back after a few messages. We're going to go into space shortly for the last bit of the show. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.